Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Recorded May 12, 2011. Episode 44. Exactly. So we just uh, did a couple of gold key uh, episodes. So we're jumping into Gary Seven. So he's made several guest appearances in several different comic book um, series. So we're going to be reviewing uh, some of his work. Or his uh, further adventures. Exactly. And very interesting character. So, cool to see him. Yeah, so everybody who's listening to this might know, but might not. But the episode Assignment Earth that was released as the last episode of Season 2 of Star Trek was intended to be a backdoor pilot. Um, and uh, it, it was intended that if, if it did well, they would start making a series out of that. Uh, that would be a little cheaper than making Star Trek because it would be best based in modern time. But uh, I never heard why they didn't go through with that. Have you? I haven't heard either. But exactly what was their measuring stick to know about its popularity? People writing in? Uh, I'm sure the ratings wouldn't have been that much different, even if it was a, a wildly well-received thing. I mean, how would people know about it? I mean, they're just t- tuning into Star Trek. So how would they gauge? Letters? Fan letters? You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. But, but, I mean, it, it seemed like it would be a pretty good series. I mean, and they they make a lot of allusions to, you know, that Gary Seven, you know, Spock says that Gary Seven and, and Roberta have many, many adventures uh, in this very troubling time or whatever before they go back to the future. So, um, I mean, I definitely see that they were planning on doing the uh, the series. Oh, yeah. And as we read the uh, comic books over the next several weeks uh, and you see some of the adventures, it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I could have seen this being a TV series quite easily. So I never, when I grew up, I, I didn't watch a lot of, other sci-fi stuff um, and I didn't get into some of the British stuff until uh, more recent years but you made an interesting analogy between Assignment Earth and a certain British sci-fi show yes a certain doctor of our acquaintance yeah there just seemed to be a couple things about about the Gary Seven situation and Roberta Lincoln and that kind of stuff that just reminded me of, uh, of Doctor Who uh, yeah, okay, so Doctor Who, Gary Seven, I'm sure everybody re- uh, listening uh, also is familiar with the, with the Doctor. So uh, Gary Seven, like the Doctor, is somebody that travels in time and space, and he knows a lot of stuff, and he's always saving the Earth, and he's got a companion. Although Roberta Lincoln is not referred to as a companion, companion that, that label per se, it's his secretary, but uh, she performs the same narrative function as the 
uh, doctor's companions, somebody for the doctor to explain things to that also explains things to the audience and uh, also uh, kind of a foil for you know giving some humor sometimes and that kind of stuff. You know, there, you know, sometimes there's multiple companions in, in Doctor Who, but that show's been on forever, so they like to mix things up. Uh, this thing never got far enough to have anybody but Roberta. Uh, right. Of course, there is Isis, so I guess there is multiple companions, but Isis the cat is uh, more of a partner kind of thing. Kind of like, uh, like K-9 was the Doctor's companion? Or oh, oh, interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, yes... And, <laughs> and Gary Seven's main weapon of choice, or only weapon of choice, <laughs> is a sonic pen. Well, no, sonic. Well, it just makes a little sound, sure. and everybody is hypnotized, or the door a opens, good or point. whatever good point. needed to be happened uh, with that device. Very good point. It's his do-all, everything-all device, like the Doctor's sonic screwdriver. Exactly. So, uh, I never thought of that until you said that, and then um, I rewatched it, and you were spot on. Mm. Uh, instead of the Time Lords, we have the uh, Aegis race. Uh, I guess I throw that out there too. But right, and they're kind of the overseers. Well, we'll get into it here in a little bit, but because right. uh, it goes into their backstory in these comics that. Uh, was not mentioned at all in the original show. Right. I mean, the at show least, could only do so much. Right. At least by name. They kind of mentioned that he has some overseers that sent him uh, to stop that nuclear holocaust or whatever here on Earth. But right. uh, we get more, more information on them here in a second. A lot more. So that being said, uh, we're going to do two issues. Uh, Star Trek Volume 2. Uh, by DC, uh, issue number 49 and issue number 50. And issue number 50 is a little long. It's the uh, super double-sized 50th issue. <laughs> a so... little long? That was brutal. <laughs> so bear with us a little bit, but the story is actually really good. Uh, you know, Good writing. No, no offense to the last several weeks' worth of episodes, but uh, I think these issues or these uh, yeah issues are are much better than what we've had lately. Yep, good writing, good artwork. Yep. So saying that, you ready to get started? Let's do it, man. All right. So I got the the first synopsis duties. So uh, like I said, Star Trek Volume Two by DC Comics, issue number forty nine. Uh, this is a cover date of late June nineteen ninety three. So nineteen ninety three was uh, Star Trek fandom was in full swing, and uh, DC Comics was actually publishing two Star Trek uh, episodes or issues per Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation, so uh, that summer you were getting you know, four Star Trek comic books a month, so a little, uh, a little unusual for a comic book company to, to produce that much, but it's Star Trek so you gotta love it, so like I said, late June 1993 uh, the writer was Howard Weinstein, penciler Rod Wiggum, inker Mario Tangiel, um, letterer Bob Piana, colorist Tom McGraw, editor Alan Gold. 
And as always, uh, we don't ever mention it, but Star Trek is based on, or based on the Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry, in case uh, you didn't know. All right, so uh, the cover shows the Enterprise in the center of an intense battle with several Klingon birds of prey. Uh, the three Klingon ships are all exploding in huge plumes of fire. So it's a very dramatic uh, piece of art with the title, Death in the Name of Peace. So that's the grabber title. The actual title of the issue is The Peacekeeper Part 1. So it starts off with a Constitution-class ship racing through warp, and it is being chased by uh, several Klingon birds of prey. On the bridge, we see Captain Chekhov uh, ordering some evasive maneuvers, and the Klingons start to open fire. The ship is taking massive damage, so Chekhov orders the firing of the Proto-Matter Weapon, or as he says it, Proto-Matter Weapon. Uh, an exterior shot shows that the three Klingon ships are engulfed in flames and being blown apart. Back we get a, uh, a close-up of Chekhov's face as he's pulling off a pair of VR goggles. He tells a strange-looking alien that was watching over him that the proto-matter weapon works very well in VR simulation. Uh, then it will be, uh, if it works that well in the real world, then it'll be a very impressive weapon indeed. So the alien assures Chekhov that everything will work as designed, uh, and we also are introduced to an elderly Commodore, Hirosaki, uh, who has been overseeing this project for the last seven years. Meanwhile, Kirk is in a very heated conversation with Admiral Cartwright about the protomatter weapon. Kirk fears that no one has learned from David's mistakes in using protomatter in the creation of Genesis. The Admiral states that this is why Kirk was chosen to oversee the field test. It, uh, if a cynic like Kirk can be won over with this demonstration, then the rest of the Federation brass will follow suit. The Admiral then makes a strange comment that if this does work and the Federation does not buy it, then it could get sold to the Klingons. Uh, Kirk informs McCoy and Scotty about their mission and their plans to rendezvous with the USS Pacific to view the demonstration. There is a little banter between the three of them about the irony of naming the test ship Pacific. Uh, not sure if this is uh, due to the roots of the word Pacific being peace, or because the only nuclear bombs ever used in human history against another human civilization was uh, dropped there in Japan, which is in the Pacific Ocean. Which do you think it was? I think it's the World War II reference myself. I thought so, too. So Commodore Hirosaki and Chekhov arrive on the Pacific, which is a Miranda-class starship, and they find Scotty getting the old bucket of bolts running well enough to do the field test. Hirosaki and Scotty trade a few barbs and discuss how they've worked together for years and that Hirosaki is all too familiar with Scotty's padded estimates. Uh, when the three of them leave engineering, a mysterious cloaked man beams in holding a cat. The man seems to be speaking to the cat and uses a pen-shaped device on some of the control panels. He is interrupted by a security officer. He trains the pen device on the guard and the guard promptly falls asleep. The man tells the cat that they'll have to return later and beams away. 
Just then, Chekhov, Scotty, and Hiroshima return to engineering and find the, sleep, the sleeping guard. He, he soon wakes up, but he does not remember what happened. Uh, Scotty cannot detect any sabotage, but Chekhov orders extra security patrols. The Enterprise soon arrives at the space station, and in a, long, in a large conference room, they're giving a demonstration of the uh, weapon. Uh, these are using mo uh, small models uh, to demonstrate the uh, power of the uh, protomatter weapon. Kirk again voices his skepticism, stating that in the real world, the uh, enemy rarely stays in one place. Uh, this is because the little models they're using is on little toothpicks, uh, which we'll talk about later because that doesn't make sense. But anyways, later, McCoy, Kirk, and Spock are having drinks, and they all voice concerns about... Uh, the nature of such a weapon. Um, as they're drinking, the security guard uh, that was put to sleep earlier picks up an intruder alert again in engineering. Uh, he's detected two people have beamed in. One is a cloaked man, perhaps the one from earlier, uh, perhaps not. And the other is a huge tusked alien. Uh, they are getting to work on the control panels when three security guards arrive to try to stop them. Instead of putting them to sleep as the cloaked man did earlier, the intruders fire their pin devices at them, killing two of them and wounding the other. Despite the attacks, uh, the test plans are, are still going forward against Kirk's warnings. Uh, Chekhov takes the Pacific out to fire the weapon uh, upon an asteroid. Uh, when he does so, there is a huge spike in radiation or radiant energy and the asteroid and the Pacific are engulfed in a huge mass of energy and vanish to be continued so I'm just going to go go on record in saying that there is no way you would still do a test if two people just got killed and another one got injured and you've had potentially three different intruders or unauthorized entry um, on the ship even if you can't detect the sabotage, I think that you would postpone firing a weapon of that magnitude. Yeah, I agree. It seemed weird. I mean, and they did have Kirk saying that he was against them continuing the test. But uh, I just find it odd that Admiral Cartwright would would allow that to keep going on. Right. And uh, definitely, as Kirk had mentioned... Um... Definitely the Commodore uh, really wants this to happen. Uh, I think he said she's looking after her legacy. And, and by the way, this is probably, I'm jump, probably jumping ahead to the next comic. But it, he, he's definitely making the comment, as much as he's trying to force this not to happen, the Commodore and then the Admiral are pushing for it to happen, especially the, uh, the Commodore. So, right. I mean, she's she's older and she's been working on it for seven years, so yeah. obviously it's close to her. Um, but but still, you don't jeopardize people's lives and oh, you no, know, you don't. But a, a whole know. ship full of people wouldn't be much of a story if you stopped here. True, true. And I still don't buy what Cartwright was talking about. I mean, it, even if Starfleet didn't put a lot of funding into this project which it kind of sounds like they did they still had a Commodore overseeing the whole project um, so I don't see how they could have ever sold that that weapon to the Klingons if the if the Federation didn't end up buying it or whatever they were trying to do right 
Yeah, what, what was the reason for this other race to be even involved in it in the first place? Well, I'm assuming that they were the, the scientists or whatever that was developing it. Well, okay, human... Well, I know, but it's human... Uh, Carol, Carol and David Marcus and their team were the ones that created the whole idea of a protomatter and turning it into the Genesis uh, device in the first place. So that sounds like human tech. And then here's seven years something being developed, something incredibly dangerous. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to keep that within? Uh, well, okay. And these guys are probably a member of the Federation, whatever. But I yeah. don't know. Well, if if I remember correctly, I mean, protomatter I think has been around for a while. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until Star Trek Three that we find out that you know David Marcus used Fights some things. of it to to do to do the the test or whatever. They used it to get past certain problems, right? Right, and it was again it was illegal at that moment. So I mean, obviously, it's something that's been around for a long time. David wasn't Fine. the first one to invent So David and Carol Marcus, who, after Star Trek II, it's like they almost never mention her again, even though she seemed to be the real driving force behind um, behind the Genesis project. Um, well, yeah, so, so, she's so definitely still, they... She's still on Genesis. She stays on Genesis while David goes to the Genesis planet. I mean, she stays on uh, regular four or whatever it is. Okay, but... You're right. It doesn't make sense. I mean, this is how many years later, uh, and, and the time period of this whole thing is kind of interesting too. But whatever. Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, this would come. This would have been around Star Trek Six time, so right before Star Trek Six. I, I'm right. assuming. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming that they began working on this after the events of uh, Wrath of Khan. Don't know how far after the events of Wrath of Khan. Maybe that. Maybe not that long after. So, uh, yeah, so I guess that would have been about right. Yeah, so but I, 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 I just thought ever since Star Trek Three, and definitely these comic books, the idea of them not even talking about Dr. Carol Marcus is kind of odd. Anyway, but yeah. they, they were focusing on the sun in Star Trek Three, and okay, fine. He was the one that was actually in the movie as opposed to the, uh, his mother. Right, she, she, was too, she yeah, wanted too much money one. to come back. <laughs> I, I, Maybe, I don't know. I'm just I don't making, know that. I'm making yeah, you that just up. made that up. Yeah, as a joke. So don't 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 anybody repeat me. <laughs> I just a couple things are a little weird, but you know that's fine. Whatever. I mean, overall, I, I think it sets up a, an interesting uh, situation. I mean, the idea that um, that you could develop a devastating weapon that could take out three Klingon ships at once was really kind of interesting, and the implications of such a thing, if an enemy race got their hands on it, I thought was really kind of, ooh, that would not be good. Right. Should they even be developing this thing? Yeah, obviously it's a parallel to nuclear bombs. Yeah. That's what they're talking about. If if we don't develop it, somebody else will. Right. And if if we have it as a threat against our enemies, then then they can't hurt us. Right. And continuing it on, Knowledge and technological development goes pretty quickly, so you can pretty much bet that uh, if the Federation had this technology, they would not be the only ones to have it for all that long. For that long, uh, either by secrets being given away, like happened with the nuclear bombs, or uh, or just through parallel development. 
I mean, you, 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 I think the idea that all these races that have resources, in some cases that are very aggressive, uh, that, that the Federation lives around, uh, the Romulans, the Klingons, uh, later on, Cardassians, whatever. Right. And the idea that everybody's kind of, I mean, you have cloaking devices once in a while, but for the most part, everybody's got about the same level of capabilities. I always thought that was kind of weird. Because there are other science fiction stories out there, a little more hardcore science fiction, where one race comes into contact with another race, and they are not at the same technological level. And uh, whoever's not the, you know, as advanced as the other one usually ends up getting totally uh, uh, taken over. Lose. You lose the battle. Right. I mean, there's a lot of communication. Even though, you know, like, the Romulan Empire is kind of cut off from the, the Federation, I mean... I would assume that they're still trading ideas and things like that, uh, or they have spies in each other's camps to, yep. uh, you know, keep one side from overpowering the other. So I, I think, I mean, it's it's a Could parallel be, but... to Earth. I mean, some countries are a little more technologically advanced than the others, but ultimately they all kind of even each other out. Well, okay. So are we, <laughs> is the U.S. very even with um I said eventually. Libya? Eventually, it all evens out. Eventually, okay. Well, I'm not complaining because I like the Star Trek universe and how everybody's got phasers and photon torpedoes and, you know, they all get into scuffles, but, you know, nobody's completely overwhelming the others with, uh, you know, with overwhelming technology. So I like like visiting that that place every week. I just don't think it's over. I don't think it's overly realistic in a a spacefaring situation. You're right. But if if it was really lopsided, then then they would have to come up with cheesy ways to put the board all to sleep every week or whatever. <laughs> yeah, or I figure mean. out a way to overcome uh, cloaking devices, which really should be an overwhelming advantage. <laughs> but we always find a way to uh, overcome it for that week, and then the they advance their cloaking device technology enough to, to render us uh, blind again. Right. Yeah. And and, and Ohura's uh, <laughs> uh, revelation that it's got to have a tailpipe after all those decades <laughs> of fighting people with cloaking devices. Uh, that uh, was obviously a reference to Star Trek 6. That was indeed. That was indeed. I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, it was. Hey, I, I, I love all this stuff. I just all right. So in regards to this weapon, I mean, they make they make a comment that they say that uh, if this proto matter weapon uh, can be placed on ships, that it'll replace phasers and torpedoes, which I find hard to believe because it's kind of hard to fire a warning shot when your shot will completely obliterate <sighs> your the ship you're firing it at. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's more like a Cold War type thing where it's more the threat that you could shoot it than actually exactly. shooting a, a warning shot, which right. I don't know. I understand why they said it, but it just seems a little <clears throat> out of place for yeah. what we know they use the phasers and the torpedoes for aside from just destroying something. Right. Many nations have nuclear weapons, but that doesn't mean they get rid of their battleships and other kinds of conventional weapons. Right. Obviously, the cloaked dude might be Gary Seven with ISIS. We, I'm assuming, at the beginning, right. right earlier. But I never quite got what 
what is it that he was trying to do and got interrupted? Well, I think like he said in the, well, the details of what he was doing, I wasn't sure. But obviously he was trying to, in some way, sabotage the device, but in a way that would not hurt anybody, but get them dissuaded from uh, from using it. I think that's what he was doing. Uh, and then the uh, security guy stopped him, and then he just ran off, saying he was uh, Yes, and was going to come back to it. And I think he said in the second book um, he that he, he was making preparations to do something about the test, but then before he could come back and... Uh, you know, and, and execute his plans. Uh, they, they. I wonder why. Do you, you make a good point. Why didn't he come back again? Because right. the test did go on. Or why didn't he just? I mean, if he stopped it because he knew Scotty Chekhov and the uh, Commodore was about to come in that door, why wouldn't he just put them to sleep and continue what he was doing? He could have. Yep. So I didn't really understand why he needed to leave suddenly, well, except to make it convenient. I, I, I'm I'm a little more okay with him having to leave, but I'm not okay with him not coming back before the uh, before the test actually happened. Right. Because I mean, I mean their intervention, uh, the the as we'll see in the next issue, there are some third parties involved here, uh, rebels, and and they obviously got in there and did their thing before the proto... Um, I'm ruining the next issue. Yeah. Anyway, so they did their thing very close to the time that they were going to fire the weapon. So, right. and, and there wouldn't have been any time for Gary 7, I don't think, to get in there and do what he planned to do. So that's the part I don't, I don't like. Right, I got you. I got Sorry. you. So I like seeing Chekhov in command of the ship. That was cool. Um, right. Obviously, uh, I guess Sulu was off being Captain Sulu. I guess. Yeah, but, he would uh, already be. He would already be on the Excelsior by now. Right, which is cool. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I, I like seeing uh, Chekhov as captain. Well, he's a commander, but you know what I mean. Right. I mean, especially when the, when the story the story starts off and he's referred to as Captain Chekhov and things like that. You're like, oh wow, I missed. I must have missed something. <laughs> well, the time period was interesting because it was, you know, it was a jump farther farther in the future than what we've been reading. Right. So that was that took a little getting used to. Right. So, yeah, and, and in regards to that little simulation at the beginning, I thought it was odd that he then takes off the VR glasses, uh, which look very real world type. Uh, virtual reality goggles or whatever um, makes you wonder why they don't use that rec room that we saw in the animated series and in earlier comic books, which is very hollow deck like. Yeah, I don't know. I'm assuming they did it because, and you know, <clears throat> next gen has already been out, and they kind of established that that's new technology for the next gen, and they kind of downplaying anything that was in the animated series. Because that wasn't canon. So, some say. <laughs> <laughs> but some don't. Yeah. Uh, and, and another, I mean, apparently they didn't, because, uh, Kobayashi Maru. Because that's the, the, when I was first reading it, it was like, okay, this seems like Kobayashi Maru. Uh, oh, okay. Um, but, but they didn't have a simulator room. So, they went with the VR thing, which probably would have been cheaper 
on a ship, you know. Well, yeah, and that and you don't have to, to make pay a ship like that. That and you don't have to pay very senior officers to pretend to die. Exactly, you're right. <laughs> Which I, I never <laughs> no. understood that in Star Trek One, where you have all these very senior people just falling around and pretending like they're dead. Right. You're like, don't they have better things to do than <laughs> pretend to be dead? Exactly. McCoy was was involved in that, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, got anyway, it. I guess I have nothing else to do. I have, all, I really, have one other well, thing just... about the little scale model. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they even make a comment that they had this the ship, even though it's small scaled ship, that the the ship that's getting fired upon is actually made out of a denser material than a real starship would. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. So that means that if you're if they're firing this proto matter weapon, it has to be strong enough to destroy a real ship, right? Right. But it's just inside of a glass dome. Right. So why would why would the proto matter not go through that little ship through the, the glass, through the other side of the dome through the the <laughs> onlookers outside of the space sh- uh, the this space station? It just didn't make sense. Yep. Even after they go through so much effort to explain that, you know, even though this is a small little cube, it's just as dense as a real starship. Right. So I just thought it was funny. They just wanted to demonstrate to the reader, you know, this is real stuff. This is going to do it. This is what the weapon's going to do. Look forward to this. Yeah. But yeah, they, they, some some things don't make much sense. Right. If you think about it too much, don't think about it too much. Okay, uh, that's you're thinking my, too much. That's my problem. I gotta quit thinking. Exactly. Uh, the only thing I have to say, and and this has nothing to do with the story, but in the letters page, mm-hmm. a gentleman or or a lady, I don't remember which one it was, uh, is talking to the DC editors and asking for a Sulu miniseries or a Sulu regular series, mm-hmm. and the response is that that DC doesn't think that a, a, a monthly series would work just yet, but they had a plans for a four-part Sulu miniseries. Cool. Um, Did but they ever do that? No. Hmm. So that was my comment, that that would have been cool, but I've never heard of a actual four-part Sulu miniseries being published, so that's too bad. Hmm. So, anyways, that was it. I just, uh, you know, when you're looking at something that was written yeah, twenty years ago, it makes you wonder. Yep, that would have been cool to actually see. That would have been best laid plans, though. Okay, so the next one is issue number fifty, fiftieth issue, big deal, double size, maybe even a little bit more than double size. It's a big one, so strap in, folks. Uh, the Peacekeeper Part Two: The Conclusion. This one was published Jul- July nineteen ninety three. It had most of the same people involved, but a few little tweaks. Howard Weinstein, of course, wrote it. Penciler is Rod Wingham. Inkers, Arnie Starr, and Carlos Garzon. Colorist is Tom McGraw. Letterer is Bob Pinaja. And editor is Alan Gold. Okay, synopsis. The cover shows Gary Seven looking like Sam Neill and holding Isis in the upper center of the picture. To his left and right are the heads of Kirk, Spock, Scotty, and Chekhov. At the bottom is the Enterprise and three instances of the USS Pacific, all emanating from the same shining starburst of light. The text tells us that this is a double-size 50th issue. 
just too much action-packed story to fit into a normal issue, I guess. The action starts on the Enterprise Bridge, whose shields are straining to rebuff high radiation levels and asteroid debris from the mighty protomatter experimental blast. Kirk orders evasive action. Now! They escape the blast area with minimal damage, but are forced to keep their distance from the blast site for hours due to continuing radiation. Kirk is angry about Spock's lack of answers as to what happened, but the ship's sensors can only penetrate the intense radiation field so far. Later, alone, Kirk discusses his feelings of foreboding pertaining to this new weapon with a silver-haired Dr. McCoy. At the end of the conversation, McCoy gives Kirk the reassurance he needs when he says he's never seen Kirk's instinctive red alerts to ever be wrong. Later in the meeting, Admiral Cartwright, or later in a meeting with Admiral Cartwright, Kirk makes it clear to Commodore Hirosaki that he wants an end to the protomatter experiments. The Commodore wants to do it more than ever. Admiral Cartwright says the weapon development is not immune to cuts or outright cancellation, and Kirk's investigation will be a big deciding factor. After the meeting, Kirk says no one seems to care about the loss of Scotty and Chekhov. He says the Commodore just cares about her legacy, and even Cartwright seems to have his own agenda. Kirk exposes his, par- his, his own partiality by putting Spock on the spot to find evidence that will cancel the project. Spock and Savick send three probes into the cloud of radioactivity. Before blowing up, the probes send back enough telemetry for Spock to make a startling discovery. Later, in a briefing room, Spock says that there is no trace of the Pacific in the debris field, which is impossible if indeed she blew up. He proposes that instead she was dematerialized. McCoy shouts, You mean transported out? Beamed away? The discussion goes on about how much power it would take to beam an entire object the size of a starship away from, an, away from the explosion. Also, Spock states the radiation cloud is of a type that he has never seen before, so it is virtually impossible for it to be caused by the protomatter explosion. Meanwhile, elsewhere in space and time, an advanced-looking ship is observing a yellow ball of energy that holds within it an intact USS Pacific. The mystery ship is manned by four aliens, a Klingon woman, an insectoid, and two intruders, and, and the two intruders that were on the Pacific before the test. These, two, these last two are a big shaggy beast uh, along with a human-looking male. They speak of wanting to, the use, to use the Pacific's weapon to defeat their oppressors. Though they don't fully understand the protomatter proto weapon, the leader, Chopay, says... They will take over the Pacific without too much trouble. On the Pacific, Scotty, Chekhov, and several Vosians start to wake up. The engines are down, and they don't know what the yellow sphere is that surrounds them, or where they are. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, an unknown and very powerful transporter beam is trying to penetrate their shields. They drop forward shields and let Gary Seven and Isis beam on board. They go over old times in the Tawzex episode, Assignment Earth, and establish that Seven ages slowly and should live to about a thousand years old. 
he tells them he and his sponsors, the Aegis, need their help. Back on the Pacific, the four rogues are now on board and conversing with Scotty and Chekhov. They tell Scotty they are 30,000 light years away from where, uh, where they were and that they need the proto-weapon and the ship that houses it to be operational. Back on the Enterprise, Seven is briefing Kirk and company on the four rebels that transported the Pacific away and set up the radiation field to mask the, the abduction. He tells them they must be spot, stopped or they may be able to damage the Aegis with that proto-weapon. Kirk asks what they are rebelling against, and Seven tells them the rebels disagree with the Aegis, taking people from their home worlds and using them as agents to meddle in, the, in their people's history. Though Seven asserts that the Aegis have the best intentions and are usually right in their decisions, he does not say they are, uh, they are not infallible. They go back and forth about the Federation's prime directive and how the Aegis goes against everything their non-interference directives stand for. Seven pulls out the trump card, saying how his efforts under, the, under Aegis direction back in 1968 diverted Earth away from a nuclear holocaust. Meanwhile, on the Pacific, Scotty and Chekhov are hearing a very similar story but from the opposite viewpoint. The large beastly rebel named Koob's entire race was wiped out on his home planet when a mission he was sent on by the Aegis went terribly wrong. They assert that no one should mess with other races like that, and they are bent on making sure the Aegis harm no other races as they did to Koob's. When their persuasion fails to gain Scotty and Chekhov's cooperation, they go all hardball on them inflicting pen-based pain waves and threaten to start killing them one by one if they don't cooperate and get the Pacific and the protomatter weapon operational and fast. Back on the Enterprise, Mr. Seven is showing footage of the protomatter weapon experiment going truly wrong and destroying the Pacific and the Enterprise. So this is obviously their future, or a possible future. That event was what he was sent to stop, but the rebels got to the Pacific and grabbed her before he could uh, do his uh, plan. He goes on to describe how, if not changed, the future will have the Federation dropping the project and the Romulans picking it up and hiring the Vosians to finish the weapon. The Romulans will use the weapon to start a war with the Klingons that will eventually draw the Federation in. Kirk demands to know where these images came from. Uh, Seven confers with Isis. Back on the Pacific, Scotty and Chekhov are working on repairing the Pacific, but not too quickly. The rebels push them to go faster. Scotty talks them into giving him access to the rebel ship's computers to speed up their repairs. On the way out, the Klingon female assures Scotty and Chekhov that they will kill them one by one if they don't start making prodigious progress. Elsewhere, Seven completes transporting Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to one of the many Aegis secret central scanning facilities. This is where the images from the future came from. He explains the Aegis are able to move through time like the Federation moves through space. They have a long discussion 
of what makes the Aegis so right all the time. McCoy makes the observation, uh, for them being so powerful, the Aegis left themselves open to uh, attack using the proto-matter weapon. Seven explains that they are not infallible. Seven says they will not force the Federation crew to help. On the Pacific, Scotty and Chekhov notice weaknesses forming in parts of the yellow sphere that surround them. The Klingon and the large shaggy alien confronts Scotty and Chekhov, saying their work is too slow, so they kill one of the Vosians. Flat out. Chekhov wants blood, but Scotty holds him back. They make fresh plans for their escape. On the Enterprise, Kirk, McCoy, and, Scott and Spock have one last debate. McCoy points out several specific instances when Kirk decided to reject the Prime Directive and get involved, and it was the right thing to do. Maybe the Aegis do know what they are doing. On the Pacific. On the Pacific's bridge, the Rebels are discussing the recent weakening of the defensive shield around the Pacific and how it's an indication of probable outside interference. It turns out that Scotty and Chekhov have tapped into the bridge monitoring cameras, and they are watching the Rebels' every move while on the bridge. They learn of the Rebels' preoccupation with potential external attacks, so they think they can get away with more inside the ship while the Rebels are distracted with external threats. Scotty tells Chekhov of his recent discovery that he may be able to tap into the Aegis transporter and get them out of the Yellow Sphere. But once out, he is not sure he can control where they end up. They finally decide it's better to be alive anywhere else than where they are and be killed by the rebels. They make their plans. Back on the Enterprise, Isis has a plan, yes the cat, to take on the rebels and the Pacific even if they have the proto-matter weapon operational. It requires Kirk to give Seven complete control of the Enterprise. Kirk re reluctantly agrees. On the Pacific, plans unfurl. Condition red alerts sound, stating the automation system is failing. Uh, it, the automation system failure is imminent. Chekhov enters the bridge and is immediately attacked by Ivad, the female Klingon. Chekhov talk Chopay into letting he, Scotty, and the remaining Vosians on the bridge to pilot the ship in place of the failing automation systems. On the Enterprise, Mr. Seven takes the con and begins a rough ride 30,000 light years long. They arrive at the location of the Pacific, but they have taken damage and phasers are offline. Spock and Scotty's people feverishly work on making repairs. Chopay hails the Enterprise and asks for their, former their formal surrender, or he will blow them up using the protomatter weapon. Kirk, of course, declines, and the cross-ship debate goes on long enough for Spock and company to get the phasers working again. Kirk cuts the chatter and aggressively attacks the Pacific before she has a chance to fire the protomatter weapon. The phaser and photon torpedo attack weakens the Pacific shields, but not enough before the protomatter weapon is finally charged up and fires. The Enterprise stops firing and starts evasive maneuvers that barely evade the protomatter weapon blast. 
Before the protomatter weapon completes its charge cycle, Scotty drops the Pacific shields and engages his plan to use the Enterprise transporters to tap into the Aegis's temporal-slash-space transportation stream and beam all nine individuals off the Pacific. Spock's sensors detect the shields dropping, the odd transporter readings, and the fact that no one is on the Pacific. Kirk immediately gives the orders to fire photon torpedoes, which utterly destroy the Pacific. Kirk, Spock, Seven, and the others race down to the transporter room, where the transporter chief is trying her best to hold on to their patterns, which is already part of a much stronger transporter signal than the Enterprise transporters are are able to normally deal with. Seven rushes forward to use his magic do-it-all pen and pull them from the stream and onto the Enterprise transporter pad. All is well. Scotty and Chekhov are back home, and the Rebels are remanded to Mr. Seven and the Aegis's custody. Kirk is not happy about being powerless to do anything about the Aegis's meddling in other others' affairs. Kirk and Spock see Mr. Seven off in the transporter room. Kirk sev- says Seven must be, or Mr. Seven must be happy to go home, and curiously, Seven replies that home is a rather alien concept to him. He says when you jump between all times and places, you can't really feel that any place is home. A heartfelt admission from such a powerful man. However, he has ISIS, and they say they believe in their work. As they transport away, Kirk hopes the lonely man does for his sake. The Enterprise streaks off to their next adventure. So, sorry about the length, but there's a lot of stuff going on, and I really hate to cut out the good stuff. Now, you shouldn't apologize. We should write this Weinstein guy and let him know that we did not want such a long story. <laughs> it was all gold. You couldn't cut any of it. Yeah. No, I, I like it. It was, good. it was very good. And Now, they could have broken up into three issues, but it's fine. Whatever. Yeah, that was good. So, um, it, he does say in this episode, or this issue, that he's not, he, he is a time traveler. Uh, but I rewatched Assignment Earth um, before we started this, and in that episode, Gary Seven says he is not a time traveler; that he is of the present, uh, 1968, and that you know his ancestors were you know taken from Earth, and he's been raised on another planet, but he's he's earthly and he's from that time. Yeah, right. And that 20th century. His 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 over his organization that he works for is the one that can see the future but but he can't and he can't travel through time so i thought it was odd that in this one even though they go through the effort to say that he's 300 plus years old and that he'll live to be a thousand here at the end they suddenly say oh he's also a time traveler yeah and and definitely the bad guys are time travelers because that's the big threat that that Gary says that you know you need to stop these guys because they can travel through time and destroy a civilization before it even starts. Right. Which well, it does up the it does up the stakes considerably if they have that capability. It does, but I don't think it was needed. They already have a weapon that could destroy ships, if not whole planets. Right. Why do they also need the threat of time travel? 
that was just my uh, I mean I, I didn't even understand why they they had it in there right well they definitely went beyond the original premise of the uh, show but but they also oh. said that he he hasn't traveled through time into the future he is he has lived the last 300 plus years oh yeah they, they weren't insinu yeah they weren't insinuating that he jumped from 1968 to this time period. In fact, uh, Roberta Lincoln isn't there, and part of the reason she's not there is because she's dead. So, yeah. you know. So, so At least I assume she's dead. I would assume you're correct. So why... That's why I'm saying. I don't understand why they then, you know, they go through the effort of saying that Gary is not a time traveler, and then a few pages later he says, oh, but these bad guys are, and they work for the same organization I do. It just... I, I didn't understand it. Well... The story is good, but it's not without it's not it's not without flaws. Right. I just think so. that was just you know they were trying to make it more dramatic or whatever, and, and instead I think they made it a little more confusing about what are the powers of these Aegis people because I always thought that they could just see the future, not necessarily jump back and forth through time. Right. But as they say here, the Aegis can uh, move as can move through time the way the Federation moves through space, so... Yeah. That isn't just seeing, that's actually moving. Although, those obs- that observation place they took him to, that definitely insinuated that that was just a viewer. hmm You know, so you weren't actually moving through time in that facility. At least that's what I got out of when they were there. Yeah. They had monitors, and they were just looking into the, uh, the future. Yeah, I agree. And if you can move through time, then... What I don't understand why I mean especially if these bad guys could do it if uh, the big guy really destroyed his whole planet inadvertently and they had the power to go back in time why wouldn't they go back in time and and, and undo that, and undo oh, that? Whenever, as soon as you give somebody the ability to travel in time oh there's all kinds of stuff can go wacko right. and, and we're beginning to see some of that wacko stuff happening in the uh, more recent um Episodes of Doctor Who, last season and this season. Uh, right. I mean, I mean, they're definitely exploring some of those wacky possibilities uh, once you've got time travel in the in the mix. Right. Exactly. Anyway. So, well, yeah, like I said, I, I digress. Just, I think they just, like you said, they wanted to take it up a notch as far as threat level, and then by doing so, I think they negated some of, you know, some of the earlier explanation as to you know, Gary's backstory. Sure. And what boundaries there are. Right. Yeah, I'm okay with it being time travel, but it, you know, whatever rules you set at the beginning of the story need to be followed all the way through, and you can't change the rules halfway through the story. And, you, and still... You definitely shouldn't. Although it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> I, I hate to keep on bringing up Doctor Who, but at the beginning of Doctor Who, I mean, there was no regeneration. That was an invention some, at some point down the line. Well, yeah, when, uh, when, um, oh man, I knew his name before I started talking. Um, the original guy, Hartman. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Hartnell or yeah, William Hartnell. When he wanted to leave the show due to health reasons, they they had to explain it some way. Yeah, and, and, and then I they think... brought in Mo Howard to uh, take over the role. That's not his name. <laughs> he looked like Mo from the Three Stooges. Patrick Troughton. 
Uh, right, but he looks like Mo. Yeah. But anyway, well, anyways, same bowl yeah, the, and and his regeneration, I think, was the first time they ever mentioned that he wasn't human. If I'm oh mistaken. right, and did you ever see the uh, Peter Cushing Doctor Who movie? Uh, yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah, I mean, he was human in that, right? And his name was actually Doctor Who versus just the Doctor. Right. Yep. But we're not talking about the doctor. We're talking about another guy who walks around with a sonic <laughs> screwdriver, and that's Gary Seven. <laughs> right. I, I do find it funny. I mean, the the sonic screwdriver, and that's what I'm going to call it, in the episode, it looked like a regular ballpoint pen, except it had these little appendages and stuff that would pop out. But uh, here in these books, uh, all the all the sonic pen. screwdrivers are just smooth pins. And you keep on calling it a sonic screwdriver. That's what it is, man. It's a pen. It's a pen. It's not even a screwdriver. It's a pen. The screwdriver's not a screwdriver. It's just a little light holding. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 the doctor's screwdriver can like turn screws, but with sound and anyway. Well, I bet whatever. this thing could too. <laughs> it seems to be able to do anything. It, it, it can reroute transporter beams, so I'm but, sure exactly. a screw would be the least of its capabilities. Easy. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, I think Spock has surprisingly little to say or do in these issues. I mean, he does some things, but um, after some of the comics we've been reading, uh, some of the Gold Key, etc., uh, where Spock is very much put forward, uh, a- a- even over Kirk in some issues, um, I-, I I think this story um, went maybe a little bit too mar- tar- too far. Or farther than I like putting Spock in more of a supporting role. I mean, sure, he did certain things. It's just you know he didn't he didn't do all that much. Right, and, and there's one thing that he does which I don't even understand what he was doing is when Scotty was on the Pacific, uh, it shows Spock like making engineering changes and making a comment that he wishes that Scotty was there. Mm-hmm. Why was Spock there. I would assume that there's other qualified engineers on the Enterprise that yep. you don't need your science officer down there in the guts of the ship, you know, yeah. tightening the bolt. I, I, I would tend to agree. But he is Spock. I mean, he can do anything. I know he can do it, but it just doesn't <laughs> seem the most appropriate thing for your senior science officer and first officer to be doing. Yep. But anyway. Well, maybe they just wanted to give him more to do. Yeah. Because he hadn't been doing much. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. To your point, so. he's not doing what he normally does, and he's doing all these weird jobs. Right. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Um, okay, again about the art. And, uh, you know, I thought the art was very good. It was realistic. The ships look good. The crew looks good and not idealized, which I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, Scotty is really big and fat and gray. And Kirk and Spock are wrinkled, and Kirk in particular is starting to look a little jowly. So that that's great. Uh, and McCoy is gray. Uh, but I must say, the first time I see McCoy, and I forgot to mention this in issue 49, but the first time McCoy comes up, I didn't know who the heck he was. Uh, because he... I mean, he... from a Because it was a distance shot when you first see him. And he... He looked kind of tall, and you know, uh, you know, not the skinny old wispy guy that we that we saw, especially in the last movies. Um, and then with the gray hair too, that threw me off a little bit because the hair was much lighter than I'm used to seeing McCoy. Right. 
But other than that, other than those first couple McCoy uh, drawings, I thought it was very realistic and, and, and in, in, in proper keeping with a time period. So I, I like that. I liked all that. No, I agree. And I really love the cover of issue number 50. Yes. That painting of uh, the actors, including yep. Gary Seven, yep. is really fantastic. I don't know who exactly. actually... I don't, I don't see who the cover artist was, but uh, it's it's a really nice painting. It is really good. And again, we might have had a situation where... Um, I don't remember the actor's name that originally played Gary Seven, but uh, they mustn't have been able to get his rights or something because he doesn't look like like the original actor. Really, I thought he did. In this, in the painting, really, yeah. really, I did. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, you... I think he looks much, 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 much more like. Um, Sam Neill. Yeah. You, then he does like like the original actor that played uh, Gary Seven in the TV show. You did say that. I said that, and you you disagree with that? I I do see a little Sam Neill, and once you mentioned it, but I, I still see I see the actor. Really? Okay, that's fine. That's cool. Because I mean the the actor just has such a pronounced like brow, uh, and I well whatever. That's cool. Robert Lansing was the Robert Lansing. There you go. Actor. That's him. That's him. Who really? I haven't. I haven't seen him in that many other things. And and Robert Lansing looks like he would make a perfect Romulan. Did he ever play a Romulan? Uh, not that I know of. I think that's his he, only Star Trek appearance. I, I think so too. But he looks like he'd make a great Romulan. Anyway. I thought he would make a good caveman because he he has <laughs> he has that pronounced forehead, like you said. <coughs> Right, he's got a very pronounced forehead. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, um, I thought it was really, <laughs> I thought it was really funny that the Enterprise was able to just, uh, just move out of the way of the protomatter weapon, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny because Kirk mentions it in the first, you know, in the first issue. Yeah, that issue that, uh, that targets rarely stay in place while you're shooting at them. Exactly. So obviously, this this wave, this proto matter weapon wave, is is relatively sh- uh, slow moving. Yeah, and and it makes you kind of wonder um, how powerful is this thing? Because I mean, we saw that the Genesis wave or the Genesis device could destroy a whole planet. Right. So could this thing destroy a whole planet too? If it if it hit it, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's not a Genesis wave, but I just wonder what what exactly it is. And, and it's it's never actually <clears throat> gone into detail at all. No. But yeah, you're right. It must be slow moving because he just jumps around it. <laughs> right. Which is it's it's kind of a similar thing to uh, your comment about um, that third season episode, uh, the Enterprise incident. Right. With the improved special effects. Oh, did you watch it? Sh- <laughs> yes, I did. You mentioned it, so I had a look. And it is kind of funny. Yeah, so they're so, surrounded by the right. Romulans, and, and the Enterprise takes off and just dips down about 45 degrees and takes off. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, they caught up with them and would have destroyed them if they couldn't get the cloaking device to work, but still. Yeah. yeah, It, it looked kind of like, like child's play. Uh, but if you can jump to warp that quickly... Well, I guess that would work, but 
It just looked kind of funny. Uh, um, okay, so this is something we talked a little bit bef- at the beginning uh, before we started recording, but um, I like how Scotty, in the end, ended up being, being only the people off the Pacific and into the uh, Aegis's transportation stream rather than beaming the whole ship, which is what I first thought Scotty was going to do. Um, that makes a lot more sense since he's using the um, Pacific's transporters. Right. Uh, you know, uh, like they made they made a big point of it. Huge amount of power would be necessary to transport something as big as a ship. But again, even though he was able to figure out how to get into the, the Aegis's stream, he was still using the Pacific's transporters. So I think it was very good that they was only blaming off uh, the nine people that were on the ship. Although, that, that did surprise me. That that's what he did, and I, it just wasn't clear to me. I mean, did Scotty actually expect? No, it sounded like Scotty expected them to like jump into the stream, and who knows where they go. Yep. But it is kind of handy that that uh, you know Spock and Kirk and everybody saw the opportunity and did what they did. Well, yeah. Otherwise, they would be lost in a pattern buffer somewhere, and not found for another eighty years or so. Uh. Well, but. Right, but it sounded like they were going... Okay, so all this is all make-believe, but <laughs> it sounded like they were going into the Aegis, some Aegis, some powerful Aegis uh, transportation stream. Nope. So I don't know that they were necessarily in a pattern buffer, but they were like in this stream going somewhere, but they didn't know where. Right, exactly. Like, so they, they so. said it's basically like jumping into a river without a boat and just hoping that right. they get somewhere. So, yeah, I don't know what they would what they were expecting. Right, but it's cool. It all worked out in the end. It was a uh, I wasn't expecting the ending. Right. Uh, that that ended up so that was kind of good. I did think it was funny how fast Kirk just destroyed the um, the Pacific. <laughs> I mean, he he's just barely told that they can't pick up any life signs on the ship, and he just destroys it. Well, it does kind of fit in with what he wants to do, which is to stop uh, experimentation on the weapon. Right. At least blowing up that prototype version would, well, at least blow up one, maybe the only uh, existing version, which of course could be rebuilt, but maybe that was part of his, he saw an opportunity to get rid of it. Right. Let's just hope that the the sensors didn't malfunction for a second, and he didn't just blow up Scotty and check off. Yeah, yeah, right. He 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 lets the he lets the photon torpedoes fly and says, "Oh, there's one." Or it's like, <laughs> you know, Spock doesn't say, "Oh, that was a sensor ghost," exactly, yeah, or something. <laughs> it's actually all nine of them were there. <laughs> Boom. So, in regards to the uh, the skeleton crew that was on the ship. Um, to do the test, I mean, uh, it was Chekhov, Scotty, and then just a handful of these aliens, right? Who are, I guess, the scientists that created the proto matter weapon and all this other good stuff. So, scientists, technicians, something, some, some mixture of that, right? So, I just thought it was funny when, when the bad guys were wanting to, you know, make sure that everybody <laughs> understood that they meant business and they were going to kill one of them. That instead of killing. Scotty, who's the only one who really knows the ship, and instead of ki- and then and then they decide to kill one of the scientists who created this proto matter weapon. Why wouldn't they kill Chekhov, who really doesn't have a purpose on the ship a- after <laughs> it gets hijacked? 
Exactly. I mean, he's a security um, officer or a commander. Uh, he doesn't have any expertise on the proto-matter weapon. He has no expertise on a Miranda-class starship. He's just there. So I know that he's a regular and can't die, but that, that should have been the one. <laughs> well, those other guys... Those other guys never said anything. But, they're just they're just sitting around, you know, looking all weird and alien and stuff. Yeah, and, but I'm sure they were typing away and, and configuring <laughs> things and doing taking good notes or something, you know, to make sure they didn't blow themselves up. And then that's right. the one that you're gonna kill. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. yeah. I, I just thought it was funny. I was like, man, I think if I was the the cap uh, the Chopay or whatever his name was, I'd probably not kill one of the scientists that I'm trying to steal the weapon from. Right. Anyways. I, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very uh, unexpected but kind of cool at the end where they inserted that whole thing about um, Gary 7 maybe maybe the the less positive side of his life and his mission. Um Maybe the loneliness that could be involved in 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 such a uh, such a life's uh, work as he is in, uh, and I was thinking maybe there's a little bit of uh, you know pining for the long dead uh, Roberta Lincoln mm-hmm. mixed in there maybe. Um, although di- didn't we read in one of the comics uh, where some descendant of Roberta Lincoln? who was on the Enterprise, a Starfleet member said something about like when she was really old or something. Yeah, it was... She just walks off into the night and they never saw her again or something? Right, that was uh, Star Trek The Crew number three, I think. Uh, oh, good memory. Right, where um, number <clears throat> one... She wasn't number one at the time, but uh, number one, the character uh, had just dealt with the, the planet um, that had some clones that Gary Seven had put there, right. uh, and she goes back and and reads up on Gary Seven and and Roberta Lincoln and, and finds out that her Roberta Lincoln's granddaughter wrote a novel based on all the the stories that her grandmother had told her. Right, and that was how it ended. That uh, Roberta Lincoln walked off one day with a cat and then never was seen again. Right. So, all right. So, when we read that story, and when I've, you know, thought of Gary Seven since since I was a little kid watching Assignment Earth, probably for the first time, um, I always remember Isis turning into her humanoid form more. But I, like I said, I watched the episode last week, and she only, only changes once. once, and that's near the end, right? Right at the very last scene. Uh, yeah. Roberta kind of looks over there and it's a human with cat ears versus a hot brunette. Right. And then she kind of takes a double Grr. a double a double take and then issues back to the cat form. Right. But I was surprised they never brought that up here. Why wonder why they never had Isis turning into her human form to to do something. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just a situation didn't come up. Uh definitely in the John Byrne comics which we'll be getting to. In the future, near future, right? Um, she does, right? But yeah, so I just thought that was weird. Yeah, and next week we'll find out that Gary Seven's not the only Angus character that uh, likes his 
cat. So there's, I think, an actual purpose that he has the cat as a companion. Well, she comes up with a lot of good plans. Yep. There, there's a lot of parallels between Doctor Who and Gary Seven. Yeah, and I wonder if it was conscious or not, or was it was it was it was it totally so, so Roddenberry? I assume Roddenberry came up with the idea, but you know, maybe maybe a different author did. I right. don't know. But um, was it total? Were they totally unaware of Doctor Who, or I don't know? It, you know, it, they were aware of it, and it was like in the back of the mind kind of thing, uh, subconscious kind of thing, or they actually said, you know. We could do a character named Gary Seven, and he's kind of like Doctor Who. I'm kind of thinking that they did it on purpose, but I don't have any yeah. evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, they had something well, that was popular in the UK. Yeah. And they wanted to kind of cash in on that, so have a character very similar mo. I mean, Gary Seven reminds me a lot of the John Pertwee Doctor, who was like the third Doctor, mm-hmm. because the storyline on his character was that the Time Lords uh, took away his TARDIS and he was earthbound. And, you know, oh, the pro- for a time period. Yeah, so right. the producers did that because they don't have to build what? planet sets anymore. <laughs> and they can exactly. base you know, him solely on Earth for a few years, which is really the reason why they created this, this Gary Seven character, because they were like, we want to do a sci-fi show, but we can't afford having them go to a different planet every every week. So right, I I I'm pretty sure it was intentional. Yeah, or or maybe it wasn't originally that way when they first started talking about the idea of of somebody helping Earth through the rough times from from external. Um, you know, maybe they weren't thinking of the Doctor per se, but as they fleshed out the character and worked out the details, sure seems like they. Uh, you know, they were lifting a lot of doctor uh, details. Right. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, yeah, who so. knows? I mean, but, I mean, come on. Doctor Who had been around since 1963, so. Right. Uh, I don't know when that movie came out, um, the the Peter Cushing Doctor, because I think that might be the first time that he came over to the United States. Right. Uh, but I don't know for sure. Right. I wasn't around back then. Me neither. Well, I was, but I was young. Yeah, you, you probably weren't caring about Doctor Who or Gary. No, Seven. and maybe Gary. But Seven. I was, I was thoroughly enjoying first run Star Trek though. And actually, I when I was a kid, I was very much into Doctor, and it was John Pertwee that was my first Doctor. And they say you never forget your first Doctor. So John Pertwee was definitely the uh, the guy I got to start with, and and that was the pattern for Doctor Who. Right. But then when Tom Baker came around, when I started watching Tom Baker when I was in college and, and late high school, that he was my favorite. He was my favorite. Yeah. Baker. Uh, but n- none of them hold a candle to uh, Paul McGann. <laughs> this is a Star Trek uh, podcast. Oh, okay. So we can't... But we... interesting choice. I like McGann, too, but no. Sorry. We can't talk about our favorite Bonds now? Yeah. <laughs> Bonds, James Bond. Yeah, George no. Laser be all the way, right? Actually, I like George, and he, and he, I think the first Bond movie I saw in the theater was uh, his. Oh, really? I think that was the first one I'd seen. See, you never forget your first Bond. 
Right, and he was the weakest one, but um come on. He's co- he's Jor-El, father of of Superman. He can't be the weakest one. In in w- what version of Star of Superman? Uh Superboy, the TV show. Uh oh! George Lazerby <laughs> played uh Jor-El. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. That is funny. Yeah, I never saw that show. Not too many people have. I suppose that's canon. Of course it is. Of course it is. Okay, fine. For, for that, uh, for that continuity, it's canon. There, there you go. Anyways, way off okay. subject. Yes. Uh, and, I don't uh, think I have anything else for this this issue. I really liked it. A very welcomed uh, change of pace for what we've had the last several weeks. Yes, and definitely. You know, if you can only, if you can only read one uh, old Star Trek uh, series story arc comic book, this should be one of them because it's pretty good. Yeah, so we'll eventually get to the forty-seven issues before this, and <laughs> God, that's a lot. I know. Okay, <laughs> but uh, I I don't think jumping around really hurts hurts the overall. Story arc. Oh no! no so not at all. When, when we get to them, I'm sure we'll remember that. Oh yeah, McCoy did have really gray hair for lots of issues before this uh, issue. Okay, so okay, so um, before these issues and after these issues, they're in this time period, right? Interesting. I thought they just jumped forward in time a bit. They just had a had an episode that. Just to mix things up, that happened to be that much ahead of the um, of the Wrath of Khan time frame. But no, they had a whole uh, series of basically old crew comics. Okay. Right. So the DC Comics picked up the rights right after uh, Star Trek II, and they produced monthly comics all the way, you know, past uh, around Star Trek IV time, yeah. right when Star Trek: The Next Generation came out. Uh, so every issue came out. It was whatever uh, timeline it was, you know. So when Star Trek three came out, they started changing their timeline to start happening after Star Trek three, Star Trek four, the same thing. Um, but then they kind of rebooted when Star Trek: The Next Generation came out. They started a, a new number one, and they started Star Trek: The Next Generation at number one, and and this yeah, is the fiftieth sure. issue of that. And you know, Star Trek six I think is already had already came out, so. Star Trek Six is definitely the end, so they haven't quite got to the Star Trek Six timeline yet. Starting with like issue seventy or something of this series, they actually go back in time uh, and they start telling stories of kind of what the the last Star Trek movie was, what happened or how Kirk ended up getting the Enterprise. Huh. Uh, which can never have too many of those. Well, of course not. It's there you go. So, Donnie, what happened in the Star Trek universe around now? So, 93, obviously, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was still going on. All right, so in June of 1993, which is when Star Trek number 49 came out, um, there was an original series novel called Windows on a Lost World, um, which I have not read. It's by V.E. Mitchell. It's a... Um, like an original series type timeline, so part of his first five-year mission. Uh, that was the only other novel 
Um, there was there's quite a few comic books that came out. The only novel was the uh, Windows on a Lost World, <laughs> which is about well, it's not about dinosaurs, which is what I was hoping for. Darn it! Uh, basically, <laughs> they find an ancient civilization on an uninhabited planet and discover a strange device that appears to be Windows. So it's almost sounds a the little operating bit... system. <laughs> no, it sounds more like a uh, window to another place, similar to oh. Guardian of Forever. Well, that's very different then. Yeah. So they have uh, Spock must locate a, his missing comrades and solve the window's ancient mysteries before his captain and crewmates are lost forever. <laughs> before he gets a blue screen of death. Next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. So next week, we will be doing a couple of annuals. So Star Trek Annual Number 6, which came out in 1995, and Star Trek The Next Generation Annual Number 6, which came out in 1995. So we're moving on into Picard timeline. Cool. We We haven't visited Picard in a while. It's been a while. He... Is my favorite captain. Is he really? He is. Although, I, Kirk's great too. But if I had to pick one, it's Picard. Well, you know how I like the obscure uh, characters. Oh, uh, like, who's your favorite captain? Well, my favorite captain of the Enterprise is obviously Captain Harriman from Enterprise <laughs> you, you You mean Ferris Bueller's sidekick? Yeah. Yeah. You got a problem? With interesting that? choice. Very interesting choice. Well, the only reason I bring him up is that uh he'll be he'll be here next week. Cool. So, he has a uh a, a, a somewhat large part in next week's episodes. That's cool. I I like I like that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. So, uh until then, hopefully uh Hopefully everybody stuck around to the end and we will talk to you next week. Sounds great. See you see you next time everybody on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at star t comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the